The next reading is from The Quest for Holiness by David Long. Chapter 3. The Fallen Self and Its Consequences Without God as the center of our identity, value, meaning, and purpose, we are imprisoned in a structure of being that must develop its own center of identity, value, meaning, and purpose. M. Robert Mulholland, Jr. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi that it was his desire to become all that Jesus saved him to be. Philippians 3.12 In doing so, he provided a good sense of the meaning of sanctification or spiritual formation. This is the call into the life of every follower of Jesus. Be all Jesus saved you to be. That was a driving passion in Paul's life. Yet, as we see from Paul's life, as a believer responds to this call for spiritual formation, they find themselves on what on a battleground in which the enemy is the fallen self. While there are a multitude of manifestations of this fallen self, it essentially involves our willingness to play God in our life and to the exclusion of the true God. It is the heart turned in upon itself rather than being oriented to and dependent upon God. It is a radical departure from the relational design God brought into the being into being when humankind was created in his image. It is simply rebellion. Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden with a nature that acted in a way very different from what God intended. Their orientation toward themselves changed how they lived and how they understood what it meant to be truly human. Their basic needs were the same, security, acceptance, hope, love, intimacy, and the like. But they had begun to satisfy these needs through their own means and for their own purposes rather than through, through trusting God's means. This is descriptive of the fallen self a distorted human nature. God's redemptive work in the is the correction of this nature, and that is the focus of spiritual formation. This being so, it follows that an understanding of our fallen self and its consequences is crucial for this journey we are on from broken relationship with our Father to restored relationship, from self-reliance to trust in God. Paul wrote of straining towards the heavily, heavenly prize to which we are being called by God through Christ in Philippians 3.14. Understanding the fallen self and its consequences will help us as we too strain for the prize in this journey of transformation. The Genesis account of creation and the fall is a marvelous scenario from which we may draw vital lessons regarding spiritual formation. It helps us to know God and his purpose for us. It reveals that in God's order for creation, he was the one who provided for his creation. God gave Adam permission to eat from any tree in the garden except for only one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See Genesis 2.17. We can be sure that God's provision was not in any way inadequate, but rather flowed abundantly from his riches. 
In her dialogue with Satan, Eve acknowledged this provision in Genesis 3-2. Satan set out to deceive Eve into thinking it was not adequate and that she deserved more. God provided and did so in harmony with the rest of his creation, but God's way of providing was rejected. At the heart of the disobedience of Adam and Eve was their decision to provide for themselves. They chose to provide for their own to, to provide their own food, their own wisdom, and their own way of living. In short, they chose to live in a way separate from God and his provision for them. This is essential this is the essential nature of sin, distrusting and choosing the absence of God. Yet, in an amazing act of grace, despite this disobedience, God continued to provide for Adam and Eve. He responded to their shame, which they felt as a result of their sin, by providing clothing from animal skins in Genesis 3.21. But this time, the provision was not in harmony with creation. It cost the life of an animal for which the skin was taken— pointing to the broad and devastating consequence of sin's reorientation and reliance upon self. It was the first sacrifice of blood, foreshadowing a greater sacrifice to come. We can see that it would be a mistake to read the creation passage as if it spoke only of the material needs of Adam. The reorientation from God to self was pervasive, affecting not only physical needs, but emotional, relational, and spiritual needs as well. For a seemingly brief period of time, Adam and Eve lived in a close communion with God. They were aware of his presence as he walked in the garden in the cool of the evening and had dialogue with him in Genesis 3, 8-12. Created in the image of God, They enjoyed this close, intimate relationship, but they broke that relationship by their lack of trust that God's command was in their best interest. They made a conscious choice of disobedience, choosing self-reliance in place of trust in God. Suddenly, as the forewarned and inevitable consequence of their disobedience, they were banished from God's presence and the intimacy into which they had been created. As descendants of Adam and Eve, our fallen self continues to believe that our deepest happiness will come from living our way, not God's way, for God will not really provide for our happiness. Beyond bringing about a broken relationship with God, fundamental changes in the way in the very essence of humanity resulted as the heart turned inward toward self. Wesley thought of this corruption of human nature as a lack of original righteousness, but more than simply an absence of this quality, it was the introduction of an active power that predisposes the tempers of human hearts toward sin and disobedience. Romans 7.23 In other words, when Adam and Eve turned away from God to themselves, Their nature changed to a one with a tendency to disobey, a bent toward sinning in which the first thought uh, is of self, not God and neighbor. 
rejection of God as the sustaining source of being creates a void that has to be filled. A new source of our being must be found. Created beings, then, with distorted motivations from a heart bent on satisfying itself, became their own source of being, or the distorted source of their distorted being. The fall involved the introduction of an active power that bent the heart toward sin and disobedience. What does this mean? This power is neither an alien possession nor an external influence that has taken control. Comedian Flip Wilson made the quip, The devil made me do it. Famous as an excuse for all kinds of misconduct. The devil is actively engaged in tempting, luring people away from God, but we are responsible for this drive within us. See 1 Corinthians 10.13. It acts upon the motivations that are a normal force in the human spirit. However, this drive to satisfy human needs and demands is now created is now carried out according to a different set of priorities, those required to satisfy the fallen self. Their satisfaction is pursued in a manner separate from God. That is the power or distorted power that predisposes the human heart toward sin and disobedience. This fallen self will always advocate that we put self first over God and others. In ways that are beyond full understanding, human nature changed from one designed to live in unison with God and flourish in His grace to one that chose separation from God. A mind that distrusts God is ordered by the priorities of serving something other than God. That something other is the fallen self. Remember Martin Luther's definition of sin. The heart curved in on itself. In M. Robert Mulholland's book, The Deeper Journey, we find an examination of the fallen self, or a false self as it is called, and the distorted ways it seeks to achieve distorted priorities. Fundamental in this is the priority of self-glorification. This simply means we put our own needs first and hence, in a sense, worship self. Instead of glorifying God and serving of others, the fallen self steals the glory due God and turns it to itself. This occurs at a deep basic level. For instance, it is natural for us to need to know our identity and to have a sense of value, meaning, and purpose in life. The fallen self seeks to satisfy this need, but does it in service of self. The result is the use of means that are often harmful to the rest of creation. Means that include self-protection, manipulation of others, excess of one kind or another, and self-indulgence. As a result, the fallen self becomes a fearful self, fearful of anything that might challenge the carefully constructed matrix of identity, value, meaning, and purpose by which the fallen self exalts itself. With the fallen self managing life according to self-referenced priorities, it fears that it might not be valued in the way it perceives it is due. 
From the instant this new reality of sin entered their hearts, a new set of priorities began to influence, if not dictate, the thoughts, feelings, actions, and desires of Adam, Eve, and their descendants. Without God as the center of our identity, value, meaning, and purpose, we are imprisoned in a structure of being that must develop its own center of identity, value, meaning, and purpose. We become controlled by the demons of performance who tell us that we are what we do. We become driven by the demons of possessiveness who tell us we are what we have. We become possessed by the demons of popularity who tell us that we are what others think of us. We become guided guided by the demons of power who tell us we are what we can control. Such a life is perpetually in conflict with others, with whom we must compete for performance, possession, popularity, and power. Augustine understood this intrinsic consequence of the fall. He said, my sin was this that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in God, but in myself. In God's other creatures, and the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. This distorted way of life is the curse of the fall. Thomas Merton observed that while Adam sought to improve himself through the addition of knowledge in Genesis 3, 6. In reality, he lost the experience of goodness into which he had been created by God. He removed himself from the intended sphere of God's goodness. Adam's change in essence also meant the loss of his his immortality, his contemplation, his power over himself, and over irrational creation, and finally even his status as a son of God. From this state of separation from God came disordered passion, ignorance, and suffering. He exchanged the spontaneity of a perfectly ordered nature, elevated by the highest gifts of mystical grace, for the compulsions and anxiety of weaknesses of a will left to itself, a will which does what it does not want to do, hates what it ought to love, and avoids what it ought to seek with its whole being. See Romans seven fifteen through 19. In other words, God's design for Adam was perfect, but that alone was not the end of the relationship. Adam was not to be abandoned, but rather this perfect design was to be continually sustained and elevated by the grace of God. Even through perfect even though perfect in design, humanity still needed the grace of God to be all God created them to be. He will never lose our desperation for God. We will never lose our desperation for God. Augustine understood that to say we are innately ruled by distorted priorities is to say that we have distorted we have a distorted love. He recognized the existence of two basic loves. One, a love of 
God that excludes the opposing desire to self, the other a love of self to the rejection and distrust of God. Having been born into love of self, the follower of Jesus is called to transformation of this fallen, disoriented, and distorted way of being. Understanding this fallen self is one of the important tasks in the process of spiritual formation. The battle with sin rests on our ability to detect it and then discipline ourselves against it. Oswald Chambers wrote, It is astonishing how ignorant we are about ourselves. David Benner similarly wrote, The human capacity for self-deception is astounding. This is taught by scripture, see Jeremiah 17, 9, and confirmed by psychology. Some people are highly skilled in deceiving others. However, their duplicity pales in comparison with the endless creative ways in which each and every one of us deceives ourselves. Like the addict who must first acknowledge addiction before the cure can begin, the fallen self must be acknowledged by the sinner for the Holy Spirit to accomplish the deep transformation we so badly need. Once acknowledged, a sinner can be led to understand the deep, hidden areas of his or her character through a gracious work of God. This was the pursuit of a group of monks who became known as the Desert Fathers. A young man named Anthony was among the first to sell his possessions and move into the Egyptian desert, cutting himself off from from contact with the outside world. From around the year AD 270 and continuing for 300 years, these monastics sought to combine a deep, sincere self-knowledge with a real experience of God. The Desert Fathers teach us a spirituality from below. They show us that we have to begin with ourselves and our passions. The way to God from the Desert Fathers always passes through self-knowledge. Eva Gurius Ponticus put it this way, If you want to know God, learn to know yourself first. We need to be very careful here. There is no room for justification by our works, no matter how good they may be. To avoid the error of justification by works, this statement of the Desert Fathers must be understood and applied as the perfection of the faith of a believer, not the believer's justification by grace through faith. In other words, we are not speaking of a non-believer coming to saving faith, but rather a believer seeking to be all Jesus saved him or her to be. Sanctification is the perfection of the faith of one who already believes. It finds expression in the desperate cry of the Father who said to Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Mark 9.24 It is when we are able to ask the Holy Spirit to cleanse the deepest parts of our soul that our faith is true, living, and active. That is a sign of our love of God and our desire to please Him. Therefore, we ask the Spirit to show us our many spiritual hungers for power, security, and comfort. 
drive us to sin. We ask God to show us how to feed these needs by filling us in new ways every day with himself. In this way, we drive out the hungers that cause us to use other people wrongly and to fill our lives with worldly pursuits and treasures that can never satisfy because some sent out uh, some set out on the path of Christ but remain captive to the empty cravings of the soul. Dallas Willard concluded that spiritual formation requires a precise, testable, thorough knowledge of the human self. Teresa of Avila said that no matter how high a state a soul may have attained, it never gets beyond the need for more self-knowledge. The self is where we meet God and where the Holy Spirit is doing his work of transformation. Great care must be taken to avoid self-centered introspection. This awareness of self is neither self-preoccupation preoccupation, nor psychoanalysis, nor is it an unhealthy introspection when pursued within the awareness of the love of God. It is not self-help methodology that excludes grace, but rather is a way of opening up to God's promise of more grace. It is not self-knowledge for its own sake. Rather, it is a gracious work of the Holy Spirit through which the believer joins in the journey of transformation. Michael W. Mangus, professor of psychology at Wheaton College, observed, Self-awareness for its own sake brings, brings little satisfaction. To know my heart is to start but it leads nowhere if I cannot then open those newly discovered rooms to the light of God's transformation. Self-knowledge has value to the extent it enables more effective surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of self-knowledge then lies in its usefulness as a means of promoting transformation by God's truth in his image. So what has been said about the fallen self to this point? When God is not trusted as the source of being, he has been replaced by the fallen self, which inherently unable to provide true answers to intrinsic questions of life. These questions of life revolve around a need for a true sense of self-worth. Being human will naturally entail a need for self-worth, which will involve a search for identity, value, and meaning and purpose. Reliance on the fallen self to provide answers to these basic questions, who am I, why am I here, can only result in distorted self-serving needs. The Desert Fathers understood this, which led them to seek to identify basic tendencies of the fallen self, a search that led to the identification of the seven deadly sins, pride, anger, lust, envy, greed, gluttony, and sloth. 
Each of these is a sinful means by which the fallen self seeks to establish, maintain, and live out its false sense of self-worth. The Desert Fathers also identified the seven virtues, humility, patience, purity, brotherly love, generosity, perseverance, and abstinence. These are ways in which we love God and others and are examined in detail in the next book, The Quest for Holiness from Deadly Sin to Divine Virtue. Thus, the battle with the fallen self is a battle over the means to satisfy the means of satisfying natural desires that are God-given. The image of God does not envision the elimination of these natural desires as some Eastern religions would promote. Rather, the need of the fallen self is one of transformation or reorientation of the self. Natural desires are those tendencies or inclinations that are part of our humanity. They are neither good nor evil, and they will stay with us from the cradle to the grave, no matter what progress we make towards sanctification. These are the basic needs of security, significance, love, and acceptance, intimacy, and the like. To deny these is not to be sanctified, but detached from the rest of humanity. To pray they vanish is to pray in vain, for God will never take away by grace what he gave us by nature. Everyone has these desires, sinner or saint. We need to purify the means by which we satisfy them. For instance, we will be tempted to satisfy the natural desire for security with evil desires of materialism or stinginess. We are tempted to fulfill the natural desire for significance through pride and power. We may be tempted to gratify our wholesome need for love and acceptance through promiscuity. In any case, our real enemy here is not the natural desire, but the evil desires which flow from it. This is an important distinction. God-given desires will never be sinful, but can be satisfied through sinful means. The temptation to satisfy God-given desires through selfish means will always be present, but from our knowledge of the fallen self comes the ability to test our natural inclinations against mature values, such as the last shall be first, the forgiveness of others, the confession of sin, in love of neighbor. As we followers of Jesus know ourselves and understand the, and acknowledge the consequence of the fall more deeply, we gain the ability to more fully surrender to and participate in the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit. When we follow Jesus in discipleship, Jesus' way of being identified by the Father comes ingrained in our lives. In other words, in and through faith, we find that our true identity lies in our intimate relationship to God. We understand more and more deeply that we are in our design and in our fulfillment children of God, which is a return to the intimacy of the Garden of Eden. The source upon which we rely on our identity to shift from the fallen self to God. The intensity of the Spirit's convicting 
convicting negation of our reliance on the ego to hold on to and to protect our identity is truly gracious. This illuminative, illuminative experience expands our intentionality, our way of interpreting the world. Resting in the infinite faithfulness of the divine spirit, we are opened up to new life, receiving our identity as we are bound together with Christ in relation to God. This gracious constitution of the self liberates us from the tension of an egocentric life. The human spirit comes to rest in the infinite power that holds it together and calls it into a share in the intimacy of divine life. This spiritual union with God involves sharing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who laid down his life in order to take it up again in utter dependence on the Father. See John ten seventeen through 16. I mean, 17 through 18. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. See Romans eight eleven so that we may now become wise as we learn to lay down our ego functions as the ground of our identity, taking them up again only as we live in faithfulness to the Son of God. See Galatians 2.20 The intensification of faith are being bound in to the absolute mutual fidelity that is the divine life, enables us to lose our lives in order to find them truly in the Spirit. See Matthew ten thirty nine and sixteen twenty five. In this action of Jesus of laying down his life and taking it up in utter dependence on the Father, the creative design of trust is manifestly present. Here is the ultimate example of trust in God a quality of the image of God in which we were created. In this letter to the Philippines, in, in this letter to the Philippians, Paul provided an instance of the reordering of this drive within that occurs through spiritual formation. In that letter, Paul wrote that he had learned to be content in all things. Philippians 4.11 he could write this statement even though he was locked in a Roman prison, yet he was confident he would be delivered, not from prison, but from any shame that might result from a failure of his life to exalt Jesus. It is this understanding from this confidence, this trust that allowed him to say, for me, Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Philippians 1.21 Paul was still motivated to achieve those things that were the priorities of his life. But as Paul had learned to live in the Spirit, those priorities had been reordered. reordered. He had been transformed from a legalistic, Pharisee-bent, on the destruction of the church to a man with a desire to live for Jesus and exalt him, exalt God, and to love and serve the church, to love and serve others. Paul was transformed from achieving his own self-centered goals by his own means of 
to glorifying God by whatever means God chose for him. What are the desires upon which our hearts are set? For many years, I read Psalm 37.4 to mean that if I did my part in my relationship with God, then God would give me what I wanted. It says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I have come to see a different, more meaningful interpretation of this passage. I now read the psalm to say that my relationship with God grow, that as my relationship with God grows, he will put his desires in my heart. In other words, this is not a passage about, about what I want, but rather about opening my heart so that what God wants becomes what I want. Spiritual formation in Christ moves towards a total interchange of our desires for his desires. What is it that we really desire? What we truly desire, what we are most passionate about, will determine how we organize our lives. Paul encouraged the Philippians to pattern their lives after him. See Philippians 3.17 he encouraged believers not to worry, but rather to pray and trust God for their provision. That is the design found in creation. The image of God is an image that reflects the interdependence within the Holy Trinity, which we can see most clearly in the dependence of Jesus upon the Father. But how is this possible? A little phrase added by Paul provides an understanding of reality that captures the meaning of this reorientation. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Philippians 4.5 Paul urged the Philippians to orient their lives around the truth of the return of Jesus. He said essentially the same thing when he said, But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. In Philippians 3.20 Live according to a reality that transcends this temporary life. This is a reality beyond what can be perceived with our senses. It is a reality promised by God and accepted by faith. With the return of Jesus will come the final victory. But this is not just a future coming. We dwell with this reality here and now. When our lives are oriented around this return and this victory, we are motivated, indeed empowered, to trust deeply in the ultimate provision of God for all things and to live accordingly. We are thirsty for God and we are invited to drink deeply. Psalm 42, 2. This reality is the foundation for the joy which Paul also urged in this letter. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Philippians 4.4 4. Joy is a Romans 8.28 outlook on life. Reflection and application. Number one. The fallen self is presented in contrast with the self as created by God. Describe the changes that occur as a result of the decision of Adam and Eve to disobey the command of God, in other words, to sin. What does this add to what we understand is meant when we say our relationship with God was broken?
Number two, read the following passages carefully. Romans 3.23, Romans 7.21-23, and Hebrews 12.1. What do they tell us about sin and the influence sin has over us? Number three, Michael Mangus said this about the verse in Hebrews. No matter how it is worded, the phrase suggests a type of sin with a quality of such nearness that we forget it is there. I picture something like spandex. I don't notice it until I take a step and it pulls me in the wrong direction, causes me to stumble. Jesus used the analogy of yeast and bread dough. Sin suffices itself through our beans and cannot be separated from other ingredients. How does this influence your understanding of sin? Is sin only what someone does or is there more pervasive quality to sin? Can God help us with all aspects of sin in our lives? Number four, the idea presented in this chapter is in our spiritual formation, we should seek to know both God and ourselves. Self-knowledge is a tool which we can, as we seek to open ourselves to transforming truth, reveal in Jesus. What do you hear that is helpful in this idea? What danger might there be in this idea? We read that Dallas Willard said a precise, testable, thorough knowledge of self is necessary in our spiritual transformation. What are some areas in which you might grow in self-knowledge? Instructions we are to follow include the last shall be first, the forgiveness of others, and love thy neighbor. What are some everyday ways in which self-knowledge may help you open your life in response to these instructions. How will you practice these in your life? Write out a prayer that might result from self-knowledge with regard to one or more of these commands.